We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. This is the first Sunday of Lent, by the way. If you aren't familiar with Lent and you're like, oh, I thought that was a Catholic thing. Historically, the church for generations uh, has, for centuries, has practiced this thing called Lent. And some of you might be familiar with, oh, it's that 40-day period where we fast from something and we, we just give something up. And some of you might be more familiar with a reason behind that of, oh, we're recognizing the brokenness and the need in the world, and we're recognizing our own need. And it leads us up to Easter when we have the resurrection celebration. We go, Jesus has conquered the world, and he has supplied all of our needs, and it's a big celebration, right? But what many of us may not have known is traditionally this Lent period was also used, and primarily used actually, to help bring new people into the church community. And it was a season where they would teach them about what baptism is. And then on Easter Sunday, they would get baptized. And so some of you may have noticed there's a horse trough in the room, which seems really weird to some of you. Uh, It is kind of weird, but that we've never used that for feeding horses before. That is our baptismal. And every Easter that I've been serving as a pastor, uh, we, we got to baptize people, which is so incredible, until Easter of 2020, because we didn't meet in person. So that was a big bummer for me. Uh, so I'm praying that this Easter we would get to baptize someone, not just because it's fun to play in water, not just because it, like I want to dunk somebody's head underneath, but because baptism has always been throughout the story of Scripture, throughout the story of the world, God's people have seen this washing of the water as a symbolism of what God does to wash us clean of our rebellion against him and to bring us back into him. And what that word baptize means, it's a Greek word. I don't know why we didn't translate that one. We just kept using it, but it literally just means to be immersed in something, right? And so to be covered in something. And we, as the church, believe that the only way to life is to be covered in Jesus, to be immersed in who Jesus is, in his death, his resurrection, in his saving power that brings us back into the family of God. And so we want to immerse people into this community of God's people. We want to immerse them in the love of Jesus. And I I'm hoping and praying, and we put that in here, it's going to be in here all Lent season, as a visual reminder for all of you to join us in that hope and prayer, that we would be able to baptize people who are just coming to Jesus for the first time this Easter. So that's not something we can manufacture. It's not something we can just force. We need to be in prayer that the Spirit of God is moving in this community, that we're showing people the love of Jesus, and that people would find the good news of hope and life through him. So that's going to be sitting there all Lent season. If you would join me in prayer for that every time you see it, every time you think about it, pray for real people, all right? Not just like, how are we going to get random people to come in here and dunk their heads underwater? That's a weird thing, you guys. Let's be real. Some of the things we do as Christians are weird, right? But we're praying for real people who you're in real relationship with who need to hear the good news, that those would be the people who are getting immersed into the love of God and into a community of people who love one another well. Amen? All right. So that is uh, just the timing of this is wonderful because we are actually, right now, we're going through this series where we're trying to look at the whole story of the Bible from, these are our symbols up here, from creation when God comes down and makes all things, all the way to restoration when he comes again and restores all things. And we are in Genesis 6 through 9 this morning, talking about the flood 
super weird story. Uh, the flood, Noah's Ark, maybe you're familiar with some aspects of it from your childhood, from little storybooks or things like that. But actually, in, in the church calendar, this is the week where they would be looking at that scripture anyway. And I didn't even plan that. It just kind of happened that way because we don't typically follow the old school church calendar. Uh, but because this is Lent season and we're leading up to baptism, the flood in Genesis with Noah and the ark and all the animals and all that stuff actually has a whole lot to do with baptism. So I'm praying we'll see that this morning. Uh, if you go into one of the kids' rooms over there, if you dropped off your kids over there, you might have seen on the wall, we didn't paint this, we're, we're renting from another church, but on the wall they painted this giant mural of like the Noah and the ark scene, right? And so it's got the boat, and I think it's got some old gray-haired bearded dude, and it's got like cute little fluffy animals, right? And that's typically what we would see in a children's book of Noah and the ark. You know what is not painted on that wall? All the dead bodies floating. The, the claw marks on the boat because they're trying to get in. It just got real, didn't it? This is not a cutesy story. This is a tragic story. And it's a story that has caused many people to wonder, is this God even a good God? How could a good God not only let this happen, but we're told actually causes this to happen? And those are real questions that we don't allow people to wrestle with when they just get this cute little story, right? But this is a real question we have to wrestle with as a community. If we say we're trying to go out with good news to people who are hurting in this world, and they go, what about this God? Uh, this God, I heard about this story, right, of, of the flood. Like, why would he cause total destruction over the whole earth? And we need to look at this soberly. We need to look at it faithfully. We need to look at it with sincere eyes and hearts this morning. And what I really believe, what I truly believe, as I've wrestled through this, and as I've been wrestling through the whole story of the Bible, not just taking parts out of context, but the whole story from beginning to end, is this absolutely is the story of a good God who is washing the world clean and bringing something good. So I'm praying that's what we would see this morning too. Would you pray that with me, Father? We ask that as we come to your word today, we would not come with our preconceived ideas, with the things that we think we know about it, but we would come openly to what you are desiring to speak to us today that your spirit would speak to us through your word, that this community would be transformed to look more and more like the people you desire us to be, that we would not only see a God of wrath and vengeance, no, but that we would see a good God who is passionate about preserving his good creation that he loves and cares for. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Genesis 1, we went through, we spent a week on Genesis 1, that God was creating the world, right? He organized it. He, he took three days to create space for life to happen, and then the next three days to fill that space with life, and then he took a seventh day to settle into it, to say, this is good. I like this, the work of my hands, and, and I'm here in it, right? And then Genesis 2, we zoomed in and we heard a more, uh, a more specific story about the first two humans that he created the first two humans that he created, not just as other creatures, part of the world, filling it, but also specific, special creatures that are made in his own image to be like living statues, representatives to the rest of creation of what this God is like, to 
even partner with him in caring for the world and having authority over it and having a say in how it goes, like giving this partnership to these creatures he made, right? It's, it's beautiful. Like God is not just this tyr- tyrannical God, a dictator. He's going, hey, I made this for you and I want you to actually have a part in shaping it. And then we heard Genesis 3 where all that went terribly wrong where those first two humans took that autonomy, they took that authority, and they actually rebelled against the God who gave them life. And not only did those first two humans tear apart their relationship with each other, their relationship with God, their relationship with the very creation they were meant to care for, but then that passed on like a seed into their own children. And their first two sons, one son murders his brother out of jealousy and anger. What we saw at the beginning of the story was that God created something for his people to delight in and enjoy. In fact, that word Eden means delight. And so in, on the earth, there's a space he set aside called Eden, delight. And then that word garden means pleasure or also delight. So he puts inside of delight this pleasurable, delightful place for them to live. And he says, this is yours. So God gave them all kinds of things to delight in and enjoy. Life is good. And then the trick of the enemy, the deceitful serpent that slithered in, the marketing strategy he gave was to get them to doubt that what God gave them was something to delight in and to get them to start desiring something outside of God's will. No, no, you could have more than this. James 1 verses 14 and 15 says that each person is led astray when they give in to their own sinful desires. And when that desire sets in and it gives birth to sin, that sin, it grows and it gives birth to death. And so what God said is the moment that you start to desire something outside of what I have created for you, which is good, that that thing that promises to be good is not, will end up killing you. And so their first two children, one is murdered by the other. And then that guy ends up having a whole family. And there's this guy that comes out of his lineage named Lamech, who starts bragging about how he's a more violent murderer than Cain, his ancestor, who was the first murderer. And then he's the first one to start a polygamous relationship. He he marries two wives. He's not entering into that relationship that God set aside for a man and a woman to come together in partnership. He, He takes on two wives, which is just a form of injustice of not really caring for them, right? And then this, it continues to get out of control, Chapter four, we hear about all these things. Chapter five, we get now this lineology, the genealogy of that family moving from the lineage of Cain and on. And then we get another genealogy of the lineage of this new son, Seth. That after Cain murdered his brother Abel, the first two humans had another son named Seth. And there's a lineage that comes out of that. And out of that lineage comes this man named Noah. Does anyone know what the name Noah means? In the Hebrew, it means rest. Remember on the seventh day, God rested. He settled into his good creation. That when they first rebelled against God, even though there was this brokenness that entered the world, God gave a promise. One day there would be an offspring of the woman, a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the lying serpent and bring rest to the land. So we got this lineage going of the seed of the lie from the serpent through Cain and his children. We got this lineage going of the seed of the promise of rest that would come. 
and you, you flip the page, Genesis 6, there's a man named Noah. Rest. And if you're like a Hebrew person hearing the story, you might be going, oh, could this be it? Is rest finally coming? How long was that? Like 15 minutes? I haven't even opened the book yet. So Genesis 6, we're going to start in verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Just, that's the starting point, okay? Not when God just got ants in his pants one day and decided, man, you know what? Ah, scratch it. Scratch it all. We're starting over fresh. No, no. He saw human wickedness was widespread on the earth and every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. You know, another word for wickedness, how that can be translated from the original Hebrew is injustice. So what's happening? There's violence and oppression and people not caring for one another and people not caring for the creation the way God had called them into partnership to do. So what does he do? Verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Is that the story of a violent, wrathful, angry God? God gets angry, you guys. God has emotions. He created our emotions. But how is he described in this? What sets this whole story in motion? That God is angry? No, that God is grieved deeply. He's saddened by what's happening in his good world. To his good people that he created for his good purposes. And he's deeply grieved to the point where he regrets he even made us. That should be a sobering thought. Like that God would actually regret that he made humanity. That he made creation. When in Genesis 1, we're told seven times he says, This is good. This is good. This is good. Over and over, this is very good at the end. And now he is regretting that he made it. Verse 7 Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. We don't know why. We're not told exactly why Noah was set apart from the rest of them. We do find out later that Noah himself is not a perfect man. He didn't follow God perfectly either. But there's something here about Noah that seems to suggest that while everyone else was desiring something outside of God's delight, that Noah would continually try to find his delight in the Lord that when everyone else was trying to do things in their own ways and what they thought was right, as we're told in the book of Judges, that Noah said, this is what the Lord says, I will do my best to trust in him. Was he perfect? No, but he found favor in God's eyes. I wanna skip down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. And there we have it. This tragic, horrific story of God destroying all the earth. Question, where do we live right now? On the earth. Some of you got really specific. You're like, we're in Phoenix. 
85029 zip code. I'm like, yes, but we live on the earth, right? Is this a different earth? So I'm going to make it aside right now. I know I'm trying to cover four chapters and I barely started. This is like a little mini sermon within the sermon. I want to make it aside. If you turn with me to 2 Peter 3, we're going to read verses 5 through 7. And Peter is writing a letter to a church and he's reminding them actually right before this about what happened long ago in Genesis with the flood. And he says that people are, are saying like, hey, look, nothing's going to happen with the world. Basically, like what's going on during the flood times that people in his generation too are going like, we don't, there is no God. Who is this God you're talking about who created all things? Like you, there's no end coming. What are you talking about? We're not worried about that. Just keep living your life however you want to. You do you YOLO, right? And he says, listen, these people, they deliberately overlook this, that by the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Do you remember in Genesis 1, we heard that God separated the waters from above, from the waters below, and created this kind of safety space for us, right? And so that's what he's saying there. That's how God created the world. And through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. The other way to translate that Greek word is was destroyed. Destroyed. We keep going. It says, by the same word, So in the same way God did this with water, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And I wanted to share that because that's a place in scripture where a lot of people take and they go, oh, one day God's gonna just blow up this whole world. He's gonna set it ablaze on fire and it's gonna be gone, gone, destroyed. Because that's what we picture in our minds of destroyed, right? Of destruction, What happened to the earth when God destroyed it with water? New life sprouted out from it. What will happen to the earth one day when God consumes it with his judgment, with fire? He is making way for new life to sprout from it. That the kingdom of God is a place where God comes down once again to earth the way he did in the beginning with the first two humans and he makes it new and holy and perfect, and he dwells with us there forever. That's an aside, but we need to know that, okay? We gotta have that picture of what actually Revelation really talks about in the renewed earth in order to understand what God's doing here with the flood, because God is not saying, I'm done with this, get this out of my sight. He's saying, this is still my world that I love and I created and I cared for, and he is faithful to continue to uphold it. Flip back with me to Genesis. So in Genesis 6, we'll continue, verse 17. Understand, this is God speaking to Noah, understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth. Now, they lived in a desert. Most theologians believe it hadn't even rained at this point. So he's telling Noah to understand something he could not possibly comprehend. Understand, I'm bringing a flood. What in the world is a flood? Well, flood waters that will cover the earth. Yeah, but God, what are you talking about, right? And he goes on, he says, to destroy the earth, every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. A covenant just means like the deepest form of promise that you can imagine. We make covenants, right? Marriage is like a covenant. Now we're humans and we're not really good at keeping covenants and we break those covenants at times. But when God makes a promise, when he makes a covenant, he keeps it. So verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. 
Verse 22, and Noah did this. He did everything that God commanded him. There's part of our answer. What sets Noah apart? Like God's coming with this crazy thing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And he does it. Does everything God commands him to. He listens and he trusts him. There's delight in following God. I will trust that instead of desiring something separate from him. Because that will lead to death. That's what we're going to find here in this story. If we continue, uh, verse, actually, I I skipped over verses 19 through 21 on purpose, but I want us to see something else now. What God's doing here, we just talked about how God separated the waters from above from the waters below to create this kind of safety space for creation at the beginning. What we're about to see happen is what God does is he, he parts these waters and he's upholding our life. And then all he simply does is remove his hand. And those waters come flooding back together. Do you know who wrote the book of Genesis, the first five books of the Old Testament? Moses. Moses wrote this, and he wrote it after God had led him and the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, right? And how is one of the ways that God did that when they got to this Red Sea and they couldn't get across? There's an army coming after them on one end, a body of water on the other. They're trapped. And what does God do? He parts the water for their safety to go across and to have life. And then what does he do when the Egyptians start to cross? He simply removes his hands. and The water comes back and it swallows them up. Do you ever wonder why the word uh, for this giant boat that Noah's going to build is called ark? Like, why, why do we keep using that word? Why don't they just say a giant cruise boat? It's the, the only other time that word is used in all of the story of Scripture is when Moses, the guy who's writing this, was set in a little ark. That's the word. We say basket now. He was set in a little ark and pushed off into the river for his protection. Why? Because the Pharaoh at that time said, hey, these Hebrew people, these Israelites that we've enslaved, they're like mass producing like rabbits. And there's too many of them. If they ever try to rise up against us, we're in trouble. So what we're going to do is everybody who has a male child now, we're just going to kill them. I want you to dunk them in the river and they will drown. And so when Moses' parents have Moses, they decide to put him in the river, just like the Pharaoh commanded, but they put him in this basket of safety and protection. And he gets sent away in this ark and God brings him safely through the water. And then God uses this man to safely bring all of his people through the water later for salvation. Moses is very intentional when he uses this word ark here for what happened with Noah. God is safely bringing these people, Noah and his family, through the water for salvation. When you trust in and delight in God, instead of desiring something outside of his ways, you will be brought safely through with his protection. That's what we're seeing here. So in verses 19 through 21, he says, I want you also to bring two on the ark, two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. They will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Chapter 7. We're going to move a little faster now. We're in the next chapter, two of four. Here we go. Chapter seven, 
verses 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened. These pages are thin. And the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. What just happened? Water from below and water from above came flooding together. What did God say to do? Protect this human creature that I made, but also we will preserve some of every other form of creature I made too. Everything we heard at the beginning of creation, the birds that fly in the air, the things that crawl on the ground, the livestock, the plants, we were told about all these things specifically in the same order in Genesis 1. And God's saying now, I want you to preserve some of each of those. Even the food you bring, that was the plants, right? The vegetation. And so you see this moment of decreation happening of sorts. Like the way God set everything up now, all of that is moving backwards. It, it happens in the exact opposite order that creation happened. God first separated the waters, then he made space, and then he started filling. And in this way, God's saying, hey, save and rescue these animals that I created, and he goes in that backward order of how they're listed in Genesis 1, and then we get to the waters coming together. It's supposed to, like, completely, like, rewind. I don't know. That's, like, again, dating me. Do you guys remember VHS tapes, right, and Blockbuster, and they would say, be kind, please rewind, because, like, you hate renting a video, and you pop it in, that's at the end of the movie, or, like, the like climax of the movie, you're like, great, it's ruined for me now. So you got to rewind the movie before you bring it in. If you ever watch it when it rewinds, you see it in backwards motion. That's what's happening here. We're getting a rewind of creation. We've got to find new examples for 2021, but that's what's happening. This is a decreation moment. God's saying, I made all of this, and you're destroying it, and it grieves him. And so what does he do? He just lets them get to where they're going naturally in their own understanding anyway. They're destroying it all anyway. He takes his hand away and he lets it go back into decreation mode. And this should grieve us. It grieved God. Chapter 7, verse 16 says this, that those that entered male and female, every creature entered just as God commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. That's an interesting note right there. Like, Moses could have gone in, and I'm sure he's capable of closing a door. He built the whole boat, right? But it tells us that the Lord shut him in. The Lord was protecting them in there. The Lord quarantined them, if I could say that. That's a 2021 word, right? Quarantine actually means 40 days, literally. Uh, He was in here much longer than 40 days, but for 40 days and 40 nights, the rain started coming down, and God protected them. A couple things I want us to take from this. Again, this is a little side sermon for you right here. Uh, God obviously saw that there was a time where it was okay to shut someone away. So stop judging your neighbor for their quarantine. But did he want him to stay there? No, right? He, we're going to see in a moment, opens the door up for Noah. And he tells him, I want you to get out now. And I want you to go out and I want you to start producing vegetation and life and flourishing. So... That's the other side. Like one of you might need to hear, stop judging your neighbor for their quarantine. Another one of you might need to hear, maybe it's time to start coming out and like contributing to society, right? That's a little side sermon. I apologize for that. Okay. Verses 21 through 22 of chapter seven. Every creature perished 
This is every creature outside of the boat. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as mankind. Remember, we're moving backwards now in the story. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils. Do you remember that man was just literally dust? Clay, if you will, from the, the dust of the earth and water mixed with it that God formed with his own hands until he breathed his own breath of life, his spirit, into humans. And now it's saying God's taking that breath away. Everything on the dry land died. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 1. But then what happens? What does it say in your translation there? Chapter 8, verse 1. God what? God remembered Noah. Do you think God forgot at any point? <laughs> I mean, he's watching like the whole earth get flooded, right? I don't think he ever forgot. It's not telling us like God's like, oh, shoot, there's this dude down there and his family. God, take care of him. No, no, no. What it's telling us is like God never forgot. God always remembers his people. He always remembers his promises. He always remembers his plan. And he is always faithful to keep it. So God remembered Noah as well as the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. So God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. Let's skip down to verse eight. Then he sent out a dove. This, is, this he is Noah now. So Noah's like, okay, he opens a window. Okay, the water's starting to go away. Let's see if it's safe. And he sends out first a raven and the raven goes flying around and it can't find any place to land, right? So then, what does it do? He, verse eight, he sends out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. Verse 10, so Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came back to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he had waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. And so this is how he knows, okay, the dove found some dry land. It's safe now. What else goes on at the beginning of the story of creation? When there's chaotic waters over the earth, what's hovering, Genesis 1, over the waters? The Spirit of God, right? Some of you might know what happens later in the story is there's this guy named Jesus and he goes to get dunked under some waters and over those waters is hovering who? The spirit of God. And we're told hovering over like a dove. We have a recreation moment happening here. And we'll have another one happening later in the story with this guy, Jesus, that we'll get to in a second. But God is saying, I have not completely destroyed in the way that you and I think destroyed his creation. He is washing it and rebirthing it. That's what's happening here. In chapter eight, let's look at verse 15 through 17. Then God spoke to Noah. God says, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your son's wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You guys, the literature in this is astounding. It is now, remember we, we talked about Genesis and the way it moved forward, and then the flood, it starts moving backwards. Now it relists all those creatures again in the proper order. God's recreating here. Chapter eight, still verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. So he's just gotten out. It's safe. There's dry land. 
he and his family, all the animals that get out. And what does he do? The first thing he does is find a way to worship the Lord. So he builds an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night will not cease. That order that God created for seasons and time is back. And God's saying, I will never again undo this. This is my good world and it's here to stay. It will never be undone. And he makes a sign of this promise. He makes a covenant here. Chapter nine, verses one through two. Then he gives this creation mandate again. What did he tell the first two humans to do? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Listen to this. Chapter nine, verses one through two. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. God is giving his authority back to the humans and he's calling them back into partnership with him and saying, I want you now to fulfill what you were created for, to care for my good world, to partner with me, to show the rest of creation what I'm like. Did you catch though at the end of chapter eight? What does he say? I'm not gonna destroy things like this again, even though what? Yeah, even though every inclination of the human heart, evil. Wait a second. I thought God just got rid of all those. And he kept Noah, who we're told is righteous, right? Noah's the good guy. Noah's from that seed of Seth, the seed of man, the seed from the woman, the promise that rest would come. The rest of them are from this seed of Cain, the seed of murder, the seed of the lying serpent. There's something wrong here. God seems to know something at this point in the story that we aren't clued into. That even this Noah has some of this seed of the lie mixed in to his lineage. That even Noah, as good as he was, as decent of a human being as he was, there's still a problem there's still this lie at the core of humans that they will believe, that you and I believe all the time. Maybe there's something better outside of what God's delight is. And that seed of desire gives birth to sin, which is rebellion against God. And that will give birth to death. And yet, God makes a promise to preserve and protect, even in the midst of that. Who's the hero of the story here? Not Noah, right? God. And so what does God continue to do? He says in verses six through seven, here's how he's gonna protect life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image, but you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. He says, let's get rid of this injustice, this violence, this wickedness, you are to protect and care for one another. Verses, let's go to, actually, let's go to verses 12 through 17. I think that's out of order for you, Patrick. I apologize. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. 
I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. Remember, that's a deep promise that God never breaks that I have established between me and every creature on earth. Are you familiar with uh, what bow we're talking about here? You look outside when you see it rain, what do we call it? Rainbow, right? It's pretty. All the colors. It's, It's beautiful. It's probably painted on that wall in there. It's probably in all the kids' books of Noah. Cutesy story, right? No. What what did scriptures call it? A bow. What was the symbol for warfare for the ancient Near Eastern world hearing this? Bow. Bow and arrow. And what direction, if you were to go outside, if it were raining right now, and see a rainbow or a double rainbow in the sky and how beautiful it is, which direction is that bow pointing? If you've ever shot a bow before, You know, there's a curve to it, right? And that curve is pointing away from you, hopefully, or you're in trouble when you fire it. In which direction is that bow pointing? Is it pointing toward us? Who is it pointing toward? I know humans are wicked. I know there's violence and injustice and evil. I know they're going to continue to mess it up over and over again, but I will not destroy them. Instead, There will need to be a solution, and that solution, when it comes, will be the destruction of himself for the protection and the safety of you and I. Let's see how Noah is not the hero of the story. Go to verses 20 through 23 in chapter 9. Noah, a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, that's a good start, uncovered himself in the tent, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, walking backward. They covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. And so Noah goes on and finds out about this, and he gives a curse to Ham's son and descendants, Canaan, which is this land that ends up being enemies to Israel later. After they come through the water, What's the promised land to them? It's the land of Canaan. And they have to fight enemies to take it, right? And so Moses is writing this story. Do you know where that came from? The seed of wickedness that still exists. Here's what happened. You hear the story on a mountaintop, right? The, The ark lands on a mountaintop. They're on a mountaintop. He plants a vineyard, a garden. He takes the fruit from it and does something sinful with it. Is this sounding familiar at all? And then he gets naked and his son comes in and tells everyone about it and brings shame to him. Where else have we heard on a mountaintop in a garden taking fruit and doing something with it you shouldn't do and then naked and ashamed? You see this repetition over and over and over again. And you and I, we cannot break this pattern. We cannot be the ones to just like somehow we can dig deep and muster up the will to follow God perfectly and we will never sin again or at least do enough good deeds that he'll have to accept us. No, every inclination of the human heart is wicked. 
And yet, yet, the story of the scripture of passing through the waters of destruction, passing through the chaotic waters and being brought to salvation on the other end is not over. I have just a couple verses for us to look at right now. Don't worry, we're done with Genesis, but let's go to Luke chapter 12. And in verses 49 through 50, Jesus is talking. This is near the end of his life. He's come to Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's coming to the end of his life, to his own destruction, that he will be passing through the chaotic waters of death. And in Luke 12, verses 49 through 50, as he's talking to the religious leaders, the ones who like kept coming after him, they're the ones deciding to kill him. In the last week of Jesus's life, he gets very bold with them. And this is what he says. I came to bring fire on the earth. What did Peter write about? What's gonna happen to cleanse this earth one day? Fire. I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze. Sounds like the harshest words we've heard Jesus say, right? Again, that's not in your children's books of Jesus when he's holding and petting little lambs, right? Like, no, no, he, he's come to cleanse the earth of our wickedness. He says, but, he's saying, first, something else has to happen, but I have a baptism to undergo. Now, Jesus was already dunked in the water by this guy, John the Baptist, years ago. He's talking about a different immersion and how it consumes me until it is finished. Jesus is about to pass through those waters on our behalf. And for Noah, he had this ark to bring him through safely. For Moses, he had an ark, a little basket to bring him through the water safely. And now you and I, we have a different ark that we can cling to, to bring us through the chaotic waters of death safely. And it's the cross of Jesus made with the same kind of wood. And Jesus is nailed to it and he undergoes the baptism of death, entering into the tomb. And yet, just like we see with Moses passing through the basket, just like we saw with Noah, God opens it up and says, come back out. Jesus, the author of life, the one who at the very beginning of all things breathed his breath of life into dirt to create humans. The spirit revives his own body too. And on the third day, he gets up and he walks out of the watery grave. This is good news because you and I, we can cling to that. We can have trust and hope and faith in this Jesus that will bring us through the watery grave of our own sin, of our wicked desires, and the death that comes with it. One more verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, says this. Peter, again, writing in that letter to the church, he says, baptism, remember, being covered in something, corresponds to this. Again, he was talking once again about Noah and the flood. Both times he wrote this letter to this church, he was talking about Noah and the flood. And so right before this, he's talking about that. And he says, baptism now relates to that. This is why we get baptized. He says, it now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying, getting dunked in a horse trough does nothing for you, Right? Every time you take a swim, then you would be baptized and saved, if that were true. Every time you get into the bathtub or take a shower, that's not, he's saying it's not because like you're washing yourself with water. That's a symbol of the baptism of Jesus, of the resurrection life we have through Jesus alone. And that's what we're praying that we'll be able to do with some people on Easter Sunday, that we'll be able to celebrate new life 
that they will be able to pass through the shadow of death and come out on the other side because of the work of Jesus. And if you're someone in here who's never experienced that, I pray that the Spirit is speaking to you right now about that. And if you have questions about it, I would love to talk through it with you. I know Anthony would. I know anybody here who you came with who knows this story would love to talk about that with you. Thank you.